your inciting incident might be a good place to start and how you discovered your mission and your destiny doing what you're doing and what impelled you into it. And even to be brave enough to start doing it. I was expecting the birth of one of my children and I wanted to put together a book of folk tales just as a mm. gift, right? A gift from dad. I thought that would be kind of a nice thing, you know, a little family heirloom to have some hand hand picked folk tales uh, that would, you know, it would just be something that they can pass down to their own kids or like read when they get older and everything. So I started, uh, you know, looking into folk tales and trying to pick some good ones, you know, some ones that like instill good values, good traditional values and everything like that. And, um, you know, I've always been a huge fan of like folklore and mm. myth and legend and these kinds mm. of things. Like I grew up with that. This is part of why I wanted to do it in the first place uh, to put this mm. book together. And at some stage I stumbled upon this article in the guardian of all things. <laughs> it's kind of funny to think that the guardian might've had something to do with, <laughs> with the, the beginning of this, um, mm. where the, the gist of the article was that a paper had been published um, that's that had by comparative analysis of these folk tales had determined that some of them went back unbelievably mm. far into the distant past. Some of mm. them all the way back into the bronze age. And I found mm. this fascinating. And at, and then I started looking into it and it turns out that a lot of the folk tales are that are the ones that I had picked and the ones that I thought were great uh, were these very, very ancient ones. And these are not obscure ones. These are ones that we all know. Jack and the Beanstalk goes all the way back to the Proto-Indo-Europeans. Um, there, there's many others that we're all familiar with. Um, and so I was fascinated by this. And, I, and my project of putting together a folk tales book for my, for my children sort of slowly over time started to morph into a project of, um, well, it's a book that we eventually put out called Folk Tales in the Indo-European Tradition, uh, which is a, a massive tome that takes 150 folk tales uh, and arranges them based on how far back they can be traced in the Indo-European migrations. Um, somehow my, my little pet project from one of my kids became this, this huge behemoth that ended up taking years, uh, to complete. And that was one of the things that sort of led me towards, uh, starting Imperium Press. Um, before this, I had, I had like published one book through Amazon, uh, like Kindle direct publishing, uh, didn't include my work. It was, uh, I was part of a writer's club and, I was the one that was tasked with putting together like an anthology of, of everyone's work in the group. So I'd had a, you know, a little tiny bit of uh, experience with publishing. And I thought to myself, well, I can do this with, with my kid's book. And then it, it occurred to me that, you know, some, some people might be interested in this beyond, you know, me just giving it to my kids. So that sort of got the idea of publishing into my head. So that was one thing. And the other sort of stream that, uh, feeds into the river that eventually became Imperium Press was that at this time I was going through a uh, political journey, shall we say. I was um, a few years before that I had, uh, you know, been a libertarian and had moved sort of from that into neo-reaction, had discovered, um, you know, Curtis Yarvin and that whole scene and everything um, that was basically like the gist of it is um, 
read old books and read them whole mm. and unframed. You need to take them seriously. Yes. You need read Carlyle before you read mm. about Carlyle, that yes. kind of thing. Right. Um, mm. So that's exactly what I started doing. Uh, I took mm. that very, very seriously. And I found that uh, the editions that I could get of people like, uh, like Carlyle, but even more the obscure ones that, you know, there might be a, only a single edition available for um, yeah. certain works of Joseph de Maistre, Robert yeah. Filmer, um, Jean Baudin, uh, mm. Giambattista Vico, these, these kind of thinkers. Um, I devoured them and I picked up mm. editions of like Cambridge university press, Oxford university press, penguin where where i could and this sort of thing and i found that a lot of the editions that were um that were available for these thinkers really left something to be desired especially when it comes to framing them and yeah. placing them within the native context of their own thought and worldview mm. there was one book that i i picked up by jean baudin who is a um He's, he's basically the uh, forerunner to Robert Filmer, a very important English absolutist thinker. Uh, mm. And this edition by, of, of Baudin basically tells you that you need to not take him seriously, that his thought has been superseded, and yeah. that he's basically wrong. And wow. this, to me, like reading that was just like a real eye-opening moment. And, and yeah. I almost like wanted to like throw the book in the garbage. I was just mm. so disgusted by mm. the situation that could have arisen where this important thinker who has had a downstream influence on everything. I mean, mm. Baudin uh, influenced Filmer, Filmer uh, influenced Locke, um, you know, by being the foil to Locke. So, I mean, mm. this is, this is part of our intellectual tradition and it's just basically being, um, you know, dumped on and i just <clears throat> i thought that there was something wrong with that and so i sorry go ahead i was just going to say it's a great metaphor for how the whole system works is that it's a uh, a framing of the new dominant narrative across all the texts of the past which is constantly happening once the wigs come in then the yep. wig authors are going back and looking at, at non-wig texts and say oh this is not this is we progressed past this, right? With or even, progression history. Sorry, jump. Or even Whig texts like, you know, Saturn eats his children. Like there I saw this edition of Immanuel Kant. It it made the rounds a couple of years ago. There's like a screenshot of the one of the pages at the beginning of Kant's critique of pure reason, which basically mm. says that like, you know, he was a racist and he, he, you know, uh, had no problems with slavery. And, and, and so he's very problematic, but you have to understand him, but, but please, please understand that he was wrong about everything else and morally and, and all of that. And <clears throat> I mean, this is, this is in a major edition of like one of the most important philosophers of all time, mm this is where we've gotten to. So when I was reading Baudin and Filmer and Meister and all of them, um, it, it, it started occurring to me that somebody needed to do something about this, that mm -hmm. there should be an alternative there. There should be a publisher, not even one that's like based or whatever, but one that just like yeah, yeah. actually wants to understand these, th these thinkers on their own terms, wants to place in them in their own hermeneutic. Yeah, exactly. Hermeneutic. Yeah. That's right. And, and so I started um, actually putting together an edition of Filmer's Patriarcha. 
And meanwhile, I was in touch with some of the people in the neo-reactionary scene. I had uh, started reading this blog called Reactionary Future in particular, which is kind of what turned me on to Filmer, this, this blogger. Um, and I reached out to him and I asked him if he, if he would write an introduction to, to Filmer's Patriarcha for me. And to my astonishment, he said yes. I, 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 just, I, was, I was just a nobody, just like a, a non-commenting on, on his um, blogspot page or whatever it was. And uh, he said, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll write an introduction for you. And so um, that began a relationship with a gentleman by the name of Chris Bond, uh, who eventually uh, he approached me and asked me if I would publish his book that he had been working on. And this book was, uh, it, it was the book that eventually was titled Nemesis. It was our second release in Imperium Press. And this book really took off and actually started to make a bit of an impact in, in the nationalist right scene. And uh, it, it is a very good book. Later on, uh, we had issues with him and, and we had to delist it, but that's kind of neither here nor there. It was, it was a very important sort of um, it, uh, mark on our journey uh, as, as mm. a publisher. And um, so there was a few people kind of like swirling around that small scene that was at the time called neo-absolutism. That was mm. Chris Bond, um, also Adam Katz, uh, who eventually ended up writing a, a book for us as well. And so mm. we had a little little roster of releases um, for the first six months or so uh, after the company launched. The first book was uh, we put out an edition of the Iliad that mm. Ricardo Duchesne introduced for us. Again, I contacted Dr. Duchesne, asked him if he would write an introduction. It was basically a Hail Mary. I expected him to just completely ignore me. But uh, he mm. got back and said, yeah, sure, I'll write that for you. And I was like, oh, okay, we may have something here. <laughs> right? mm. So he did that. We released the Iliad. Uh, Nemesis came out, started doing well. We put out the Ancient City, which is a whole other story in and of itself. That started doing well. And at that point, we were kind of on our way. So that's, yeah, that kind of gets us to uh, the, the beginning of the company. Yeah, it's funny. You mentioned a few things there. Is that the, interesting you started with um, folk and fairy tales and, and that tradition? Because it's not as if we program our children with this stuff. It's that stuff is deeply in being before you ever read it. And when you begin with it as a child, and perhaps if you revisit it as an adult, you actually identify and help align parts of your being that are in historical being because beings outside of the individual and you align that i mean even, even in a jungian sense too is that you're understanding your place in being uh, where you are in historical being because in a sense and he talks about this is that your ancestors are are with you and so when you're doing that sort of thing you you are nesting yourself in something that has been discombobulated by modernism, right? So I'm not surprised that's where you began. Uh, and people shouldn't underestimate how important that is, even revisiting it uh, in middle age or even as an adult and using your intellectual and wisdom to mine out of it to truly understand what these tales mean, uh, especially the, um, the Germanic ones are very important. There's... Mm. If you understand, say, Gwenon and symbolism, what you can get out of those, uh, those narratives, the sagas and the, uh, the prose Edda and the poetic Edda, are metaphysical truths. They're in there. There's a reason why it survived, right? It's in, and it's in your being. 
and it makes you hmm it aligns you with destiny i think so again i, I really think the way you're telling this narrative how it begins and the stuff that you do and how it progresses i think there's a reason for that it's because when we look into that stuff we align with a historical pathway that is in being that can align us with our place in the telos in the story of what our people are uh the west is <clears throat> and help us find our what we are to do what our destiny is because that's kind of what it is you sort of stumble upon your destiny right you begin you kind of ride the tiger when you rather than going on that pre-plan you had when you were a young man or oh, here was my trajectory based on some modernistic goal i inherited mimetically but when you start doing this you you see being manifesting you sort of ride it I suppose you could consider that like Kavola talks about it with riding the tiger. Uh, but uh, that's probably more to do with the times of the Kali Yuga. But in a sense, when getting in line with destiny, um, I, I can say I appreciate that from film is things start to happen. Doors start to open, but you have to accept it and say yes once you discover it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it actually reminds me a lot of, and this it comes as a surprise to people when I talk about it, because uh, Taoism was an important formative influence on me before mm. political stuff. Really, mm. my, my libertarianism grew out of my love of Taoism. Um, mm. So I was kind of thrust into politics from that angle. Um, and it, what you've just said reminds me a lot of the Taoist concept of Ziran, which is um, it's essentially spontaneity. Um, mm. When I was, um, I mean, I started this uh, in my, in my like mid to late thirties, <laughs> mm. you know, I, I'm not, I'm not starting this as a 20 year old man or whatever. I mean, I've had a, a, some life experience behind me before doing this mm. and mu much of that life experience was spent as a musician and mm. as a uh, later on as as someone working in the music industry supporting the music industry but it always felt doing that as a an artist and um, and later someone sort of supporting artists um it always felt sort of like trying to push water uphill with a rake yeah like it you mean. it just you know no matter how hard i tried i wasn't really meeting with a lot of success and there would mm. always seem to be obstacles in my way and everything and then all of a sudden, after having turned a corner and started going down a different path, it was mm -hmm. like, you know, it, it was like it started going downhill, right? As in, like, mm -hmm. gravity started pushing me all of itself. Once Imperium started, it was like something had, was, was pushing me in a direction. And mm. I, I, I just completely did not, it was, it was something I, of course, had to work hard at and I work hard at yeah, every single yeah. day. But at the same time, I didn't have to work against the current as it felt yeah. like I was doing for the, for the first, you know, 10, 20 years of, of my professional life. Um, and, and the Taoist concept of Zeran is basically like, mm. you know, think of something like a sports, like, like an athlete that gets into the zone mm. yes, and yes. they're not thinking about anything they they're mm. just doing. There's a sort of immediacy immediacy between themselves and their goal. Mm. And it's just a matter of just going through the motions really to make it happen rather than having to think about everything, having to plan everything out, having to, um, you know, strategize. They just do it. They do it spontaneously. Mm. And it's that spontaneity that is, the goal. This is how you know that you have 
plugged yourself into that current of all things that they call the Tao. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. and it kind of felt like that once Imperium started. It, it felt like the thing was running on its own steam, kind of, yeah. so to speak. You know what I mean? And I, was, I wasn't really in the driver's seat. I was sort of more like mm. a vehicle that was helping push it, and that's it. And you you work your ass off when this when you get into this zone. It's not about that. It's about I know it's it's about like you said plugging into the current. You you sort of uh, become more sensitive to the signs in that are in being that that were perhaps always there. But the original thing, original uh, thing you were pushing against was a mimetically inherited probably desire. In a, in a sort of das man way, in a, the they gave it to you. You know what I mean? Yeah, is that exactly. You're sort of led astray because of modernism, because of individualism and that sort of... But then when you come back into the... Like, like I mentioned earlier, I don't want to repeat myself, but yeah, it's that that moving in and plugging into something that's deeper than that that has is a more subtle effect. And when you follow that... I've talked about it before. Here's a metaphor. It's that golden thread that you notice sometimes too uh, when you find destiny of what you should be doing. It just There's an ease to it. There's a... You're upset. It develops in a set obsession, though, of course, as well, in a good mm -hmm. way. Um, and it's not hard to do endless amounts of work on it. Um, but yeah, it's that golden thread. It's like when you see being. I'm sure most people have had an experience, a moment of vision, or a, even a, just even that start of it, where you say, "There's something here in this location we are." And this is a metaphor. This golden thread is a metaphor for how it uh, the attunement feels in your brain. Let's just say for the materialists, that's you just sense it, and then you go towards the. Oh, what's that? You know, and then you might be some. You might be on some. English countryside, or you might be, uh, you know, in some land, whatever it might be. I think you know what I mean. That, and, and that's that's the same thing with destiny. You start doing a task and you stumble across something and you get that thing. You're like, what is that? Uh, and, and move towards it. It's interesting, too, you mentioned libertarianism, because I think libertarianism emerged from, I think it's actually an aristocratic um, impulse. It emerges out of, uh, it co sort of comes really, is a bit of it linked with Jefferson, um, and I know there's all theorists that are related to it, but you see it in the Virginian gentleman. He was an aristocrat. He was a cavalier. He had these instincts of what he wanted, a hegemonic liberty for himself. It didn't relate to anyone else, though. I really think the impulse behind it is uh, it's usually Europeans that are libertarian, white men, right? And I think that's to do with it. It's because the aristocratic values got passed down, right? Um, but really people want it for themselves. It's not really about anyone else. Right? Yeah, I know people say, true. oh, we should all be libertarian, but really you just want it for you, which is what the aristocratic thing is. Well, you and your other people who've earned it, because that's the hegemonic liberty, right? But if they really admit it to themselves, all these hard libertarians who haven't come to a, a more our way of thinking, is that they really want it for number one. Um, and uh, because when you look at the values of these Virginians, and you see this before they evolve into the, which I think is the mistake, the Jeffersonian mistake, there it's about building up and dominating yourself, which means virtue engine, right? It's, a, it's an earned liberty from self-domination, and that's applied with a principality. It's about being a kind of man that can enter into a hierarchy and form your own principality, like Imperium Press is a small principality. You have people that help you, right? And people that are under you, that yeah. sort of thing, right? And so it really is actually aristocratic. You want your own small principality that you're perhaps at the head, the head of, head, he, the head of and at. Um, and the mistake that happened with those uh, Virginians and a lot of America is, is that they took the different parts of English hierarchy and they moved it to different parts of the different uh, colonies. 
Um, for instance, the middle class pretty much went to uh, the Puritans, went to Massachusetts, the gents were, who went to Virginia. But what that is supposed to be, and Jefferson made the mistake of thinking everyone should be a yeoman. Well, yeoman is a uh, initiatory archetype based on Robin Hood that allows for the playable normal man to as assemble a virtue engine, right? And prove himself to get into the liminal space of entering the hierarchy. And then, so it's temporal initiation. But you lose that when you separate the classes. When you have the gent on his own, that's a problem too, because it doesn't have, he thinks that everyone should be like him later on, like Jefferson. He thinks, oh, everyone should have, should have this thing. I'll be, we'll be this aristocracy, but without a proper hierarchy, which is divine. The hierarchy is divine. It should be there. So, I mean, it's a bit of a tangent, but um, I think it's aristocratic that, yeah, it is aristocratic. And I think a lot of libertarians are actually a, a good recruitment ground for that neo-reaction space. I think even Land and people have talked about that, but there's truth to it and how the libertarian values seem to form in America as well from those former aristocrats and gens. Yeah, well, for me, um, getting into libertarianism, there was absolutely an aristocratic element to it. Mm. Um, somehow one of the influences that was pushing me towards libertarianism that I had really gotten into and very much uh, digested the, the full weight of him was Nietzsche. Mm. Um, I, I, was, I, I read him so much that, um, that, that, you know, my, the misses would, would say like Nietzsche, Nietzsche, Nietzsche. That's all I ever hear about. Right. Like <laughs> it's, uh, there was so, uh, he was so influential on me and, um, certainly one of the impulses, um, moving me towards libertarianism was basically the idea that of, um, that, you know, the, to the victor go the spoils basically it's like mm. if, if you earn something it should be yours and nobody should mm. be able to take that away from you and i mean part of this is a, in, in some sense a reaction to living in canada which is a massive welfare state with mm. a totally dilapidated um you know social benefit system that uh, believes itself to be you know the height of like human felicity but in reality it's it's actually quite um you know, it, it could do with a little bit of free market here and there, let's let's say. Um, mm. But yeah, that was one of the things that was sort of like moving me towards libertarianism. And really, I mean, I always was kind of a, a bad libertarian. I never really, um, mm. it never really fit with me all that well. I think I was, if, if I'm being honest with myself, and I think even back then I, I mostly was, I was really more of a social Darwinist than mm. I was like a genuine libertarianism. The aesthetics of freedom um, have never really appealed to me. Um, mm. the, the the aesthetics of the American Revolution have absolutely never appealed to me. Um, Neither, and uh, it's it's just I, I I my heart wasn't in it. You know what I mean? Mm. Like I just I find mm. capitalism to be aesthetically impoverished, and mm. um, but I did like the idea of the meritocracy. Like that, yeah. I, I think is just something that appeals to to you know our folk soul. Um, I think there's and, a Sorry, you're, you're about to go on now. I was going to say, no, 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 that's okay. Um, I was going to say there's a, there's a balance between those things. I think um, in terms of having the initiator, the initiatory, but you want that patriarchal thing. That's part of the ethnos connected to that, that, um, you know, it, uh, that combats the machine of the capital organism. Um, that's that should be there. The ethnos and the the king 
and these hierarchical archetypal forces that have higher being and uh, destiny than the machine of of the of the market, which is just a machine. It's really people think about it as oh, the free market, the free market. Where, I mean, it's a machine, has its uses and all that, but it's a, a, a all-encompassing. As Heidegger talks about, it's a inframing machine for the challenging forth of all uh, economic uh, mastery of nature and everything. Right to squeeze out the uh, everything from nature. Yeah. I, it is a machine, and um, like any machine, it has to have someone in the driver's seat. Someone has to be operating it. If the machine itself is is its own driver, I mean, that's a grotesque situation that mm. is never never going to lead to anything good. And I think this is one of the key insights, really, of um, of well, not so much neo reaction, although this is part of it, but absolutism which is mm. the idea that um, the king must be above the law, essentially, mm. that someone has to be, uh, the buck stops somewhere. Somebody, the final decision rests with somebody necessarily. Like this isn't even just a matter of like, it's good if this is the case. That is how it works. Just, you know, ontologically, somebody mm. is always, because the law is only a tool. Right. And, and the tool that we, we could think the law as something like the free market, setting the rules of the game. Right. Mm -hmm. um, unless you're talking like pure anarchy, in which case, you know, uh, somebody's still always <laughs> in the mm -hmm. driver. Somebody's always Genghis Khan or whatever. Yeah. Um, but um, which is kind of selling, <laughs> selling him a little short. I, I, Genghis Khan was, of course, um, a, a man of law. But anyway, um, no, but what you what, what you're what you're saying is true in the sense that you could even take it into a me uh, metaphysical essence that is in a sense unpropositional. If we take that as the king hyperagent, right? So not just the man, but the king hyperagent that's related to let's, let's call it the uh, value hierarchy, but not the value a propositional value hierarchy. I mean, that which is essentially hyperagents are beings I'm just trying to take this away from man for a second, if we can reverse where right, our right. center of everything is and take it as, as an angel or a principality or a hyper agent or a daemon for the Platonists. Um, they are structures of value that are non-propositional. If we take that as the ruling spirit underneath uh, that should be in control, it's underneath the propositional. And in the propositional is where this uh, legal structure is, is where the machine is, and that operates in the calculating quantitative space. Uh, but underneath that is are these these things, hyperagent, these things that used to govern our way of being that can be called to again, that are higher than this uh, profane quantitative uh, machine that ex is existing on the top. So you could call it the king spirit, let's say, is a the pantheon of our greatest uh, heroes and uh, beings or whatever that are still there that have turned away um, from us because of we're so in the profane now, right? So not even just thinking about it has, uh, there is a governing spirit as well as uh, that nicely, that has always been a part of being that that king is supposed to wear. And that is the ultimate authority above him and even and any of the legal, any law, anything like that. The common law is supposed to draw from that being, that, that being that can never fully be mapped propositionally, that exists in the space of, of, of the unseen and the unknown as well. That's what priests are supposed to take from. 
That's the, uh, that, uh, that spiritual authority is supposed to take from that dark place uh, that, that can't ever fully be mapped. That's where the truth is. Um, yeah, so not just even uh, a man at the top of a system, but him, and there's a spirit there. It's even deeper, more important than just a political structure. Um, it's uh, invisible forces that govern you or even still touch how we see today and how we act um, in our, when we're in our best moments anyway. Usually it's the machine, which you could call dead being because it's former truth, right? Governed, uh, especially with woke and all this stuff like that. That's old truth, warped truth. Uh, yeah. What do you think of that? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, actually. The idea that uh, propositions don't exhaust um, our ethical framework or even our metaphysical framework, something has to be prior mm. to them. Is is something that is it, it's, it strikes a deep resonance, I think, and this really gets mm. to the heart of, of some of the problems with modernity, which is basically mm. rejected the idea of hierarchy, um, made every man his own high priest, every man his own final authority mm. on everything, and what this does fundamentally is it eliminates will from the world, mm. and this is one of the things that Carl Schmidt said in um, his political theology which is the idea that um, liberalism is essentially a form of deism in that mm. it tries to abstract will. It tries to abstract God away from the world in a mundane sense of abstracting the king away from mm. the social order, right? Because mm. the king is the sort of profane uh, version of God in that the king is like, like I say, the king is the one, with whom the buck stops. His will mm. is the final say on everything. This is the font of law, basically. Mm. Somebody has to always be above the law. Somebody has to be mm. the author of law. And in the mundane political sense, that's the king. In the theological mm. sense, that's, of course, the god. Um, the god is the source of will. And what will ultimately does is it generates commands. Because what a command mm. is... In, you know, a command is is basically the the essence of normativity. It's the essence of ethics. Any mm. ought at the bottom of every ought is someone's mm. command. Um, so the 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 command is generated from the will. So you someone's will is commanding somebody else. Basically, what a, what a command is is it's a transference of will. So mm. if I want my son to clean his yeah. room. I, I, I will that he cleans his room, so I command him to do mm. so, right? This, this, mm. is, this is the essence of what ought is. If he ought to do that, it's because an authority has commanded that it be done, right? And That's... the problem is that um, we exist in a situation where propositions are taken to be the fundamental linguistic form and the, the fundamental reality. So we, we get into this definitional circle where we can never actually reach the command of any authority. And so each man becomes his own authority. Sorry, what were, yeah. you were going to say something there. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, yeah, man, man as measure and individual as measure. Um, it's interesting, though, because there is a difference between um, spiritual authority and temporal power and that they, they, are, they do both exist in the temporal realm. But the power of authority works in a different way in that when you have, say you're a priest, and our, our king is often a priest, so he's both. He's an icon. He's an icon for this truth that's behind being, right? The good being outside of being, let's say. Um, yeah. he, that symbolically is, is the black place 
It's uh, it generates the light. Um, if we're just using the metaphor of sun as good as the, as Plato would, um, that black place that he comes from, that temporal truth, that uh, spiritual authority, generates uh, how the very world worlds for everyone who's who's in, uh, given it or in touch with it. So before the will chooses something that pre i'm just using a bit of high leg here that that the forception is generated by this this uh truth and good that that, that comes from that uh, the high priest or whatnot that that is in touch with those forces and and this another great symbol for that is the boar which comes from the hyperborean tradition the reason they chose the boar is because it's in the undergrowth right the undergrowth the invisible space that's where the, and that that was always a symbol for the priest um, and so that truth is taken, which can never be made into a proposition, never, uh, brought into Dasein, brought into uh, being, and that you can't will something unless in advance you have, have a world that makes it possible to even see in the first place, can you? Um, so I think that's how spiritual power works, by giving you the very being bubble in advance that allows you to even choose uh, will any command within that uh, sphere. Um, that's how he operates. That's how it moves you without force, without the will, but in a different way in terms of molding what you can even see um, or even want to see uh, uh, in advance. That's in, yeah, that's, that's, that's how Gwenon would see it. Um, and that's just interesting, an interesting addition to what you're talking about. And how those forces intertwine. And interesting that in our Indo-European tradition, how the temporal spiritual king does that himself, um, because the way Gwen on splits them. But I think they should be unified. Um, I think Avol uh, is right about that. Um, but yeah, a tough job for a king to do both. What do you think of that? Yeah, well, I mean, the the king naturally should be the high priest, and um, this is something that has over time changed and it's kind of oscillated gone back and forth um in that certain theological paradigms have like even and i'm not talking about like christianity versus paganism this is something that actually is even within christianity itself certain theological mm -hmm. paradigms um are happy to make the the king effectively the high priest and some are not um you know i'm thinking particularly of like catholicism versus protestantism um mm -hmm. The idea, I've, I've, the the Latin phrase escapes me at the moment, but basically what it what it says is uh, uh, it's um, cuius rego, eus religio. So whoever's um, kingdom, his religion, basically. So this is mm. it's 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 making the king the high priest without making him the high priest, which is antithetical mm. to to Christian theology. But it's it's like a reflex of something much older coming back in this mm. idea and 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 the the much older thing essentially is the indo-european ancestor cult but that's a little bit of a, a side tangent but staying with the the king as high priest thing here mm. um basically what we have uh in this what appears to be something modern but is in fact something ancient is essentially radical particularism um mm. And in some sense, a culturally loaded metaphysics. So, like the um, the king, who's really actually just the vehicle for the god, uh, mm. or the 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 means, the mouthpiece by which the god speaks, is 
essentially setting the tone and speaking the law. And that law mm. is not the law for everyone. It's the law for that, those particular people. Um, mm. And where this sort of intersects with metaphysics is that metaphysics is, I mean, t it's taken to be the universal thing. It's, it's aiming at a reality which is objective and outside the human subject, outside of all culture. And yet metaphysics is very much culturally loaded. All of our mm. metaphysical <laughs> terms are inherited through genealogies and etymologies. Mm. And these etymologies color that uh, those metaphysics. So one example mm. that I like to give is, well, take the existence itself. Where do we get the term existence? Well, it actually descends from a Latin term that is existo, um, which is literally means I stand out from. Mm. To exist mm. is in mm. fact to stand apart from some other thing. Mm. So this kind of forecloses on anything like, say, monism, for example. Mm. There is already baked into the cake before we even ask the question, what is existence? Just by landing on that term, we have already presupposed a metaphysics before we can even inquire into metaphysics. Um, now, of course, this is not something that we see in English because we're not Romans and we don't speak Latin, but it would have been very, very clear to, to a Roman himself asking what is existence. Well, existence is necessarily something that's dialectical, is necessarily that's something that's pluralistic, and so on and so forth. And, and it's my belief that this is, in fact, the Aboriginal Indo-European metaphysics. But again, that's mm. a bit of a tangent. The, the, the point I'm driving at here is that metaphysics is something that actually is inherited from culture. Um, and yeah. and, and yeah. Is, it is taken to be something that's hyper-liberal and that is you know, bound up with postmodernism, bound up with people mm. like Foucault and Derrida and mm. um, uh, Deleuze and others like that. But in reality, I believe that this is a rediscovery of something extremely ancient. Mm. Um, mm. Let me give you another example of one of these that, that I think is very illustrative. There is a term uh, in Sanskrit uh, mm. called setu. And mm. setu originally meant a bridge in the Indo-Aryan language before, mm. you know, before it, there was a Sanskrit language. In the ancestor language of Sanskrit, setu meant bridge. Later, after these people, the peoples who became the, the, um, the Aryans, the, the Iranians, the Hindus, after this ancestor people had found their way into the water-rich plains of you know, the Ganges and everything, um, this same term that meant bridge was repurposed to mean dam without actually losing the original sense. So it meant bridge and dam at the same time. But a bridge and a dam are in some sense opposites, right? Like one of them joins two separate banks and the other one separates two bodies of water. So at the same time, a set to both joins and separates. And this identity of opposites that's built into this term came to stand for a deep metaphysical truth and yeah. I mean, truth kind of within uh, air quotes here. Uh, when in reality, this truth was simply an accident of culture and then it was handed down as a traditional and eternal reality. And, and the point it, that I'm driving at here is that there is no metaphysics that is not metaphysics inside of a cultural framework. So while metaphysics yeah. tries to transcend language, 
in some sense is kind of like a disease of language really if we wanted to be more charitable we could say it's the it, it's maybe the product of language um mm. and this is something that people find terrifying especially on the right because we've been um sort of made to think that this rel this cultural relativism this particularism mm. is the province of the left when in reality the left is really the most universal the most chauvinistic and 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 the most just imperialistic um, moral paradigm that's ever existed. I mean, liberalism is colonizing every space on the planet, right? So I don't think that we can really call um, you know cultural particularism something liberal. Mm -hmm. it's, it, I think it's actually quite the opposite. But to tie this back to what you're saying about propositions and the king, mm. um, the idea is that propositional language itself is necessarily mm. universal like when it's true that the sun rises yeah, and yeah. as much yeah. for me as it is for um you know a tadpole but mm. uh when you break out of propositional language when you make propositions something downstream of a lot of other things it's these other mm. things that are particularized and relative and cultural um and yeah. and this radically reframes our understandings of ethics sorry for the rant there no, no, it's great. Uh, I was just going to say that it that 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 tadpole's an English tadpole. <laughs> you know, you think it's universal, yeah, exactly. but no, it's an English tadpole. Right? Yeah. That's what people think. Oh, well, everyone sees the tadpole, but no, but it's, you saw it an English being. You named it an English being. You, you know, uh, 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 and so on. Um, and even we can go even further back from the ex uh, the uh, ex systems, the ex systems, the openness, and go back to even the Greek asking even what is what is. Or what is what is that is uh indo-european question <laughs> it is very <laughs> it much just so. wasn't asked before the greeks what is what is not or arise what is? for other people no what other people's it's uh it's just ontic for other people's it's just bat ball but you know it's only it's only us to go what is that and when you soon as you ask what is you presuppose uh being right it's the it goes Voof. it's Voof. it's metaphysical it's suddenly Oh, we've just been given. This is God's blessing we've been given. Obviously, it, 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 as Heidegger talks about, it's uh, also yeah. there's a mistake made because we disconnect. We, we take being for beings. We take being to be and is when it's the nothing. It's the, as the Orthodox Christians talk about, the uncreated uh, is a good way of thinking about it. And we took the, and then the, gl the glimmer of being and of beings, everything starts looking stale because we took the propositional uh, for the being itself because we named that thing from which it all spawns as an is um that's all going to be gibberish for people who don't i know yeah. you do but well, but well let's let's try and let's try and make this but, really understandable yeah, yeah. So, um, i just want to make one so, more point and, but yes go ahead. And, yeah. and come back i just want to say that this stuff starts first in those symbols that you mentioned the dam and the bridge they are some that's thinking before it's even a proposition that's saying that it helps you understand being uh, metaphysical being using something in manifestation to see something higher or behind. And so that was gifted to us, uh, the Europeans. Um, first, it would have been seen in those poetic symbols in that. And a way of thinking about it is, OK, let's say when a simple one is the manner, the uh, manner as condensation, you know, the frost on the grass. It comes after the dark, right? That's a that is something that people saw over and over again. 
and realize that that was, oh, that's because manner is the spirit, right? It comes from the nothing, like I just mentioned. That's, that is the uncreated. It's a, it's a metaphor for the uncreated and where the, what's it called? The transcendence comes from. But you get a sense of that when you wake up in the morning and walk out there and you see at the dawn of the morning, the sun rises, you see it perspectively. But anyway, sorry, jump in. Make it more understandable. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, 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 just, I just kind of want to echo a, for a moment here what, what you've been saying about the uncreated, the, the, the negation essentially being coming first before mm. the affirmation. I mean, this, this is at the heart of, of all Indo-European theologies, all traditional Indo-European theologies. You think of something like the Norse creation myth. What is it at the beginning of everything? It's Gnunga Gap. It's the gap, right? It's what is at the beginning of the Hesiodic theogony. It's chaos. And what is chaos? Chaos is a yawning gap. That's what mm. it means. This gap is the creative force, is, is the sort of womb out of which being actually comes. This is the, mm. our traditional understanding of things. So, so what, what you've said there actually, it makes a lot of sense. But to sort of bring it down to earth a little bit here, what we've been talking about in, in terms of propositions and, and commands and so on and so forth, um, where this is coming from is that, well, let's just say um, there's a problem in philosophy that has vexed philosophy uh, ever since, and it's the is-ought gap which is pointed out by David Hume and Kant's, uh, you know, Immanuel Kant being the sort of fountainhead of really modern philosophy, um, certainly philosophy since himself, his, basically his system is sort of an elaborate um, way of trying to avoid that problem without actually dealing with it. It's, it's trying to, to, to it's, it's like an elaborate cope that it's not really a problem sort of thing. Mm. Um but it is a problem. And the, uh, the, the is-ought problem is that there is no number of statements that you can say X is Y or this is that that will ever, ever generate an ought. So you will never – there's always a jump. Every, after every – you know, however many conjunctions of metaphysical statements of like this is that and th that's basically what we mean by propositions mm – -hmm. um, you will never, um, unless you just sort of arbitrarily jump there, get to an ought, which is a command, essentially. Mm. So you've got this gap moving from is to ought. And mm. the problem with that gap, uh, what generates that gap, is simply the fact of trying to move from is to ought rather than the other way around. Mm. Um, it, it's rarely ever thought of yeah, that yeah, it, it can be yeah. bridged from the other direction, right? So again, let me make this um, pretty concrete here uh, because I like to give simple examples. I'm a simple guy. I like to understand things in, in very sort of basic terms. Every word in your basic vocabulary has been inherited from your parents, right? Mm. Uh, they didn't appeal to your reason or anything else to tell you, you know, uh, what there is out there. They just commanded you to notice certain things. They directed your attention towards um, qualia, effectively, things that are out mm. there that you can see. Um, they just commanded you to take this as 
milk or take mm. this thing as dad or this thing mm. as your brother um, or whatever. Propositions, propositions, which are in our metaphysical understanding, our, our post-Platonic metaphysical understanding that's going back a really long way. This is a very mm. deep error. Propositions are taken in that framework uh, of Platonic and on to be the mm. basic linguistic and conceptual unit. But propositions, mm. the is in the is-ought problem, propositions are complicated linguistic structures that are built up out of more primitive elements. And if you don't yeah. see those primitive elements, you're going to run aground. You're going to run into huge problems. And TLDR, the problem is, is every man his own king. But they, mm. which is just to say that the most primitive element of all the, the element that you miss if you if you believe that the world can be exhausted by propositions the most primitive element mm. that you're going to miss is your parents authority right mm. so every word in your basic vocabulary everything everything out there every being that there is in your conception uh you inherited from your parents or your parents mm. inherited from that's effectively culture culture is sort of the yeah. the ultimate source of of that but the most primitive element of all is parental authority or by extension cultural authority yeah so an, an easy way into this sort of imperative proposition thing is um to illustrate what i'm talking about in terms of like how propositions cannot be the basic element Suppose that I handed you, Scott, suppose that I handed you a dictionary that was Swahili. And mm. I don't mean like an English to Swahili dictionary. I mean like a dictionary that's just all Swahili. Could you learn to speak that language by looking at that, at that dictionary? Of course you couldn't, right? Um, the propositional worldview, which is to say metaphysics, mm. is the idea that words derive meaning from conjunctions with other words, but yeah. this actually never lands on anything intelligible because words can only yeah, catch out to other words, right? You yes. need something. You need something prior to words yeah. to break out of that giant definitional circle, and the definitional yeah. circle will never end. Um, yes. And the, the clue here is that the nonverbal has to come into play. And what this yes. is fundamentally is what linguist, linguists call ostension, which is definition by pointing to things. It's the pointing yeah. that is, is the fundamental sort of element at the, it's the bedrock of metaphysics is this uh, ex exemplar, the, the pointing to things. So as I said before, um, when your parents tell you, you know, like, how did you learn who dad was? Well, it was because mom mm. pointed to him and said dad. And eventually mm. the conjunction of the pointing and the, the sound it told you that like this thing is that. And that's kind of where metaphysics begins. But metaphysics mm. is still mm. a long way off from that, which, which it's just just to say that the odds. Yeah, it's even. So, go ahead. I was going to say it's even more deeper and complex uh, in that there's just so many different layers that the proposition is always already in a uh, context, uh, perspectival and procedural and uh, participatory knowing that's constantly giving form to the context in which it's said. Um, so that's always there. And yeah. that ought, you're always under the throw of the ought before you even uh, in the bubble that says, oh, what is, or what is what is, 
Um, yeah. That always so comes if, in if advance. Of what, sorry. Yeah. Sorry, if, if we're trying to work out, because, I mean, a lot of what, like, again, I like to give practical examples. The problem here is that um, we have these endless debates over what really is authority. Who is the real authority? Who should we follow? I mean, it's it's a very practical question, right? Like, we just had the coronation of, of Charles III, mm. and I listened to a very interesting discussion by Millennial Woes about how he doesn't feel like he should swear allegiance to him. And, and I get that. Absolutely. I agree with him um, on that particular point. But the question is, who actually is the authority? The, and, and this is typically, it's taken that we need to work out this question dialectically. We need to work it out by reason. We need to work it out by evaluating a series of propositions to see, you know, um, which of, which of these are true and, and are the, is our worldview coherent? Does it point to anything? Who is the authority? But this is a bit, a, a bit of a problem. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that, um, yes, I mean, this is why I swore an oath to the overking, as I call it, the hyperagent, which is the ethnic uh, being, hyperagent that's always been there, that uh, is an authentic, authentic truth. We're in the inauthentic, right? We can't see it because it's just been pushed unconscious, I suppose you could call it, in a Jungian sense. We've just been in the modernistic world frame. It is there, though, and it still survives, I think, underneath the propositional, underneath this stuff. Uh, it's still vouchsafed in being. That's what we need to look into to find the old, right? It's still out. You, and you can consider that outside being, right? If you take being as historical, if we're not going to say that, sorry, the good is historical, if we make that move, um, that's where we need to look as a uh, in a pluralist way. It's like this is our universal, not including anyone else. And uh, that's where you get the things that are supposed to give form to and predated any ethical proposition that we articulate in advance. Uh, that's what I look to anyway and what we've lost yeah. touch with. But I think it's still in the unconscious, though. It's still there. It's been pushed away because if you look at books like Primitive Mentality, uh, that uh, and Jung that uh, that investigate where we are now with our modern mentality versus primitive. You can see that something's been pushed away and unconscious that was for the ancients very present. They weren't just wrong about it. It's that when they saw Mars, it in their ontology they saw Mars and that was war. That was war, right? They manif Cupid manifests as Cupid in their symbolic way of thinking, but they're not necessarily wrong. It's it's it's. Uh, take a more ancient um, ontology, if we think about how it's changed over time, really we've created mental illness for ourselves. If we saw it the, how they saw it, it's actually perhaps how it's supposed to be. <laughs> I mean, that's very uh, yeah. complex, but you can well, it, go it makes to my sense. Uh, previous points. So a, lot, a lot of what I like to do when I'm trying to like work out these questions, like questions of ethics, questions of authority, and questions of anything, really, I like to look at etymology which is something mm -hmm. that a lot of people, I mean, it's, it's not the first thing that you think of, but I find that when you look at the aboriginal meaning of a term, very often mm -hmm. it actually, a lot of things snap into place and it actually makes a lot of sense. Um, how things have changed, you know, something like, um, I, again, the, the notion of existence, 
that I gave earlier would be one. How is how have, has that changed? Where did it start? And very often the Aboriginal meaning actually makes a lot more sense of things. But what, what you were mm. saying there about the swearing allegiance to the overking as as the authority, this is effectively the sort of like ethnos, right? Um, mm. This I think is it's it's a very it's a good point. This is a, this is where your allegiance needs to lie because necessarily that is always where the authority is just by definition, mm. right? Uh, mm. And the thing is when we're trying to evaluate, you know, what's right or who is the proper authority, this is kind of putting the cart before the horse in some ways, because what mm. I'm saying about how ought is upstream of mm. is yes. authority is always already in play. Ostension, yes. this pointing to things and saying, take that to be that this mm. pointing to things uh, is both a gesture towards something and a command to notice it. So mm. something like, take the example uh, for ostensives, um, again, this definitional pointing, this pointing at things, the boy who cried mm. wolf. This is, mm. you know, a deep sort of archetype in our culture. When the boy cries wolf, what is he doing? He's actually mm. ostensively pointing to something and telling you to notice it. He's both pointing to the wolf and commanding that you notice that wolf. Um, but a command implies authority, right? And so where's the authority in the situation with the boy and the wolf? Well, the authority is primitive and assumed. Mm. It's already there mm. before either of you get onto that scene. The boy's yeah. authority to tell you that there's a wolf was bound up in your trust in him, that he would provide mm. these reliable ostensives, that he would say what he, that he's not lying essentially uh, authority is already there for you to trust this boy and like if you trust strangers to tell the truth which is a very ethnically european thing it's because mm. authority has commanded that you do so right that that parable would probably not exist in any other culture right because that's mm. it's just part of who we are the idea is that yeah. authority itself is the primitive thing it's the the bedrock yeah, and it's not proposition people need to get that is that no one said it to well they may have said it to their children but even the fact of a wolf being a bad thing obviously that's more universal to cultures but that being selected in advance the boy being trusted in advance right that is yeah. usually predates uh, anyone telling you that you should no one told you that you should trust a boy uh, you know no one told you that that stranger is trusted it's something usually that's uh, absorbed. It's uh, again, it's you're under its throw, and sometimes it's even something that uh, is so deeply nested in a culture that it doesn't even need to be observed. Almost right. It's just that you. I, you could take the developmental psychological point, which is uh, you absorb it procedurally when you just watch people. I think it goes even deeper than that. I think these are, uh, um, you know, I mean, some people might say epi epigenetic, but um, I don't even need, think you need to go that far. It's uh, the collective unconscious is a very serious, serious thing. I think. Um, yeah. I don't mean woo like I don't mean in terms of uh, you know <laughs> transmission or whatever, but the, how being works is stranger than people realize. Um, yeah, sorry, uh, I interrupted you there. Though continue. No, no, that's okay. It's it, the 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 point that we're driving at here is there, there's a lot below the surface of something as simple as a definition that a triangle is a shape with three corners, right? That seems mm. pretty basic, yeah. right? But there's yeah. so much already in place before that can even get going. And mm. it's noticing that and understanding that 
um, because authority itself is 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 the axiomatic starting point. Uh, mm. This actually changes quite a lot in our in our conceptions of ethics. And you know, to to skip over all of the details, basically what it means is that you are not, you cannot be your own authority, which is problematizes something like conscience, right? Mm. Conscience taken to be uh, the, uh, like, you know, cornerstone of ethics. Mm. But what is conscience? If not, um, I mean, like, ultimately, like what, what conscience is, is just setting oneself up as the judge of highest matters, like which God Mm. am I to follow, right? Mm. Um, So, like, the question is whether morality is exhausted by truth claims, you know, propositions, or not. And Mm. I, it it seems clear to me anyway that it's not. And I think uh, Mm. people like Heidegger are are really gesturing at the same thing. Something Mm. comes before it, and that something is will. Will is manifested in commands, which are given from one one to another again like i said before mm-hmm. commands are the sort of transference of will like one person mm-hmm. the dad instrumentalizing the son to clean the room right if we want to put yeah. in those terms the problem comes when one wills or commands oneself this is totally incoherent you can't command yourself to do anything right like it's just it, it's impossible mm-hmm. and yet self-legislation which is setting one's own will up as the moral authority is the entire basis of modern ethics. And in some sense, uh, conscience, which is basically the same thing, has been at, at, mm. at the bedrock of ethics for a very, very long time. And so mm. it seems to me that this understanding of, um, of ethics as being upstream of metaphysics really, mm. really turns a lot of things on their head, but like in a way that actually sets it on a... Uh, a better footing, a more proper footing, something that allows us to really sort of get back to the Aboriginal understanding of who we are, what we're doing, mm. and and where and where we're going. I think uh, even you could say again that before that, uh, in advance of the will, unless you, you you're taking will to be sort of rapture, is that what you mean, Nietzschean, in terms of that being the openness? Is that what you mean? Um, because even well, before that, the first command or first first will is how the the world in advance. Uh, outside of being, I suppose you could say. Uh, yeah. That sets it up before you can even have something to be looked at, um, to even see it. Like, and just going back to a previous thing we said in the conversation, uh, another interesting point or, or grounding or concretizing of what we're saying is, uh, Husserl talks about this, is that before we even had the triangle, it was procedural first. It was getting a uh, string in Egypt and putting that string around things, Right. And this thing worked procedurally for something and eventually became idealized and brought in as a uh, a mentor fact, right? So that's a good way of showing you how something comes out of procedure before it's understood as anything. And it works on the ground uh, to make pyramids or make squares, right? And that slowly becomes, right? Just like even Heidegger talks about being in Greece is the very land itself is brought into being is metaphysics because we are metaphysics meta above physics right and that's yeah that's i think that's a pretty concrete example you can see that people at home can understand what we're talking about in terms of the procedural becoming uh idealized uh, as a uh, uh as yeah as an idea or a concept not just not just pro- propositions as language but even even mental facts even uh, concepts uh come out of a different way that isn't um 
yeah, because like, the perspectival's nested in the procedural too, right? So these things can, I think that helps. But you were about to say something regarding uh, the will thing. Uh, yeah, just the idea that the will is basically primitive and you can't define it. It's the source of yeah, definition. Yeah. But I want to pick up no. with, on what, what you were just saying there about how how the particular instance of the triangle, the, the shape that's traced out with a piece of string actually comes mm. before the idea of a triangle. Mm. This, is, this is a very important point. Um, it's the particular instance of a thing that comes before the universal generalization of that thing, right? Necessarily. Mm. Before we have triangles, we have these shapes that are imperfect approximations of what will then be, come to be called a triangle. Um, mm. You know, you cannot have the um, you can't have the universal without the particular concrete immunitization of that. Mm. It's like if you take, say, for example, something like six apples and then you take away the apples what do you have left mm. do you have six no you have nothing right like mm. this is it's it's a very nominalist understanding of reality and it, it seems to me that nominalism which is taken to be something hyper modern uh again it, it it's sort of um been retconned as the uh the birth of liberalism or modernism it seems to me that mm. that this is actually sort of the rebirth of something very ancient, something that mm. had been forgotten for a very long time, something that has been remembered now in the modern era. And this is a, a something that uh, I've talked before on the Imperium Press Substack and as well on, on the Culture Dads podcast, which is that uh, it seems to me that what's happening in the modern era is that mm. there is a kind of rebirth of the archaic happening that things are starting mm, yes. to move in a direction towards it's almost like since the renaissance roughly we could just say arbitrarily as a starting point since then um we have in some ways been kind of running the clock backwards toward mm. something very very ancient like the renaissance itself was a kind of restoration of the classical world and mm. then later on uh as as we mentioned, well, actually, before that, even you got the um, the uh, Reformation, which again mm. gives us things like nominalism, gives us things like um, the eus uh, regio, cuius religio. All of the all of these sort of ancient things start to be born around this time, and then later on, we get to Romanticism. And romanticism mm. is absolutely a yearning for the primitive and the aboriginal, right? Like mm. all of these mm. ren all of these romantic paintings are depicting things like Celtic bards and like ancient mm. landscapes and nature and things like this is this is yearning to go back, right? Mm. Um, even though it too is considered something very liberal, which I disagree with. Mm. Um, and then mm. you move on further and further towards the 20th century, you get people uh, in the late 19th century like Nietzsche that are, again, very explicitly moving towards the archaic. You get something like fascism, which is, um, I, again, it is a rebirth of the archaic spirit. You get modernist mm. uh, paintings, things like cubism that flatten out all perspective. Mm. This is, again, very primitive. And we seem to be moving further and further and further and further back. And mm. uh, at, at some stage, we get the advent of pure identitarianism in the modern world. And, mm. it, and it seems to me that identitarianism is 
is the ancestor cult trying to be reborn in the modern world in a very imperfect mm -hmm. way, but that's what it's sort of moving towards. It's trying to move towards this veneration and even actual worship of the line of fathers and the family moving back all the way to the high gods. It seems that like identitarianism, which is, is, is very troubling, not only to liberals, li liberalism, but to many, many theological paradigms, uh, mm. is it kind of doesn't fit in any category. And we could, we could put another thing here in as part of this archaic revival that I'm talking about, and that is environmentalism. Um, mm. Environmentalism, to me, seems to be a reflex of the very, very ancient uh, theological paradigm of what's been called cosmic maintenance. So this mm. is a term of art that's used to describe the kind of um, pre-axial uh, theological paradigms where the state cult would essentially enact ritually the creation of the world and man would radically participate in that creation and in the maintenance of mm. the cosmos. This is, this is what the, you know, the state cult of the Iranians was before the advent of Zoroastrianism. This mm. is uh, the, the cosmic drama that's unfolded in many, many ancient Indo-European ritual um, paradigms. So this, it seems to me that this cosmic maintenance man as having a, uh, as having a part to play in the maintenance of the world is mm. in some sense um, profanized, but also um, it's trying to be reborn in a genuinely theological way in environmentalism. And of course, in our thing, yeah. uh, environmentalism is, is very strong. There are many guys in our scene that have a strong connection to it. Yeah. Whereas it, it, it too is seen as a kind of liberal thing. So I think, like what's happening is that a lot of the categories, the traditional left-right categories over time, or like tradition versus anti-tradition or whatever, they're being exploded and things are kind of up in the air right now. And it's up to us to mm. take hold of that and to really frame that in a way that actually makes sense. I think we have to be uh, aware and concerned about profanizing is, is a good way to put it. Because I think a lot of these movements, a lot of these things... I think the Romantics did a good job of not profanizing um, because when you map everything as known and you, I think a lot of perhaps some of these uh, states really stuffed up this by doing that, by with their attempts at making a sort of uh, religion or whatnot. Uh, I'm not saying right. that that shouldn't be the case. It shouldn't be evolved because I, you know, I'm Church of England, right? That is a state church. Um, but uh, of I, I hated what they did with the coronation and all that. But yeah, that profanizing, that uh, thinking you can turn it into a system, but the people at the top are just the, uh, you know, the cynical Machiavellians that don't believe. No, the, the only way this would ever work, it, it's true believers of the truth. It's the truth, right? It's looking for the truth of being. Um, and I just think that that's the only, you, they're the people you need in charge of that sort of thing. I think some of those words are sort of dead words as well um, for bringing, because there's a lot of people coming into our, movement or whatever like um even identitarian as a word it's no it's just the truth of what you're the being it that you that in advance already you are in is that's just what it is and you're identifying with uh, with angels i think i think that's hyper agent i think is really the best way to think about it is that if there's something has tried to spring forth is trying to tell us and i've got a great uh, essay that you'd probably like reading called um uh 
nation as hyper-organism um, mm. and distributed cognition, which is this force, this ancestral being, as a pantheon of our greatest heroes, as an organism, which I call the king spirit, right? It's a thing. It's an actual organism that is fighting. And every now and then it gets its way and pushes through and you see it for a second. It's trying to attack Das Man. It's trying to move Das Man and the liberal uh, and, the, and the dead being to the side to show you its truth about what ought to be. Um, yeah. And I think that way of seeing it, and people are getting that now by seeing the, the enemy as the woke th uh, thing, as a, a darker, dead being organism that will only drain you of energy and drain you of uh, vitality. This one has just been screaming for so, so long, right? It has, it's a, you see it in the traditions. The, the traditions are part of, its, um, part of its body, right? And the more you kill of those traditions, you're killing bits of its body. And our reaction, if we get annoyed about it, that's its tendrils in us say, saying that's wrong. And you get a sense of that when you watch a ceremony like the coronation and you just feels wrong, something's wrong. That's it, the king spirit in you responding to it. Because part of it is this value hierarchy I mentioned earlier, which are, are constituent pieces of it, constituent pieces of, because uh, values come from heroes, values come from ancestors, like you mentioned earlier, right? So when you say value, it's just a way of breaking down what um, a thing that you're under throw of, that you only ever see as a emotive attunement. And of course, that hierarchy um, is not a hierarchy, uh, thinking about it like a Kantian one. It's a hierarchy of different attunements that uh, Sheila talks about, which is uh, the sacred, <coughs> sacred, unholy and holy, the uh, moral beneath that or the spirit beneath that. And then it's the, uh, vert I think it's uh, noble and um, ennoble. And, th and then you're in the profane then. And they feel different. That's sort of utility. Utility, your drive to utility feels different than your drive to the sacred. And you this and that, and you open up uh, on that. Um, yeah, so I think that's a good way of thinking about it as an angel, because you can identify with that, and you know it's true because the king wears it. When you look at the sacred symbols, they help you mediate what that thing is, what, what it tells him how he should act. But of course, we ignore these things. We ignore the sacred symbols, which are things that are supposed to help us mediate how to act. Spurs of St. George, what do you do with Spurs? You sit on a horse. What's the horse? The military, right? So and what do you do with the spurs? You move it around. You, it's, it's an extension of your will. And what, is that, what world is that will supposed to be uh, embedded in? The virtue engine of St. George. So you're looking into the story, which you could even connect to Thor, really, as the English version, Dragon Slayer. It's not really the, the original old Semitic one. It's a different type, different being. Right. But yeah, what, what do you think of that? <laughs> yeah, no, that, it's, it's, it's a good way to sort of tie things back to where we started here with... Um, the the symbols themselves are ultimately sort of hypostatizations of the will that is emerges from the god and the mm. will that emerges from the god is embedded in the myths and the legends and the folk tales yeah and as a little short digression here um one of the points that i make because i haven't really written too much for imperium um but one thing i did write is the introduction to that folk tales book uh, and right. one of the points that I make is that it's very hard to disentangle folklore or fairy tales from myth and legend. A lot of times, mm. you know, folk tales and folk um, culture is taken to be low, myths, legends to be high. Mm. But if you actually look at um, the intersection of these things, like if you read the folk tales, you will see a lot of the myths embedded in them. And in fact, uh, the 
the folktale itself can be traced back further in many cases than the actual myth. In the case of, mm. you know, there's there's several elements in the poetic Edda that are also found in these myths. Um, mm. So this is all to say that, like, you know, folk culture itself it has a direct connection and is not just simply like low culture that was bu bubbled out of the earth from nothing. Um, it has mm. a direct connection to what's what is high or what is deep and profound. It, it has that connection to the king and ultimately mm. to the god. Um, so these things, these the, our folklore, our myths, our legends, our instantiations of ultimately this the, the commands, which cash out at the end of the day to the will of the god which is the thing that that cannot be unpacked any further um so yeah it's it's important for us to recapture these things it's a, important for us to reframe these things the myths mm. the legends the folk tales our uh, epic stories our philosophy our literature it's important for us to recapture these things because they've been perverted they've been yes. interpreted in ways that are absolutely antithetical to the spirit that animates them, to the will that drives them into existence mm. in the first place. Um, and I think that by recapturing that, by reframing that, this is, mm. this is more subversive and more dangerous to the system than any, any, like, you know, identitarianism say uh, mm. could ever be right. It's, it's, it's kind yeah. of where it's, it, it's the wellspring of the, of the ladder, yes. right? This is um, so taking these symbols, interpreting them in, in ways that make sense, um, mm. taking authority itself to be kind of primitive and already in play. Um, mm. These are things that liberalism absolutely cannot brook for one yeah. second. And, and it's why, even... Sorry, I was just going to say. I was going to say. They, I think it's why we've sorry, met in, with in. so much. Um, sorry, it's it's why we've met with so much uh, pushback, basically. And they can't even use it. They're tools they can't use because it's so alien to their uh, way of being that it would be contrary to it. So I think a great way of seeing it as, or at least a way for moderns to understand it as psychotechnology. These are ancient things that have been. Uh, they're innovations that, uh, even ones that have never actually been properly articulated and used because they were implicit. They were just things we used to tell each other and they had a utility. Not that we should profaneize them by saying utility, but they did have a utility as well. And so we stopped using them. So they might as well be, for all intents and purposes, a new invention just waiting to be used again, right? And unpacked by us. So it's so much more than just an old story. It's a thing that uh, is a new invention, like, like an untapped oil, Derek, untapped oil uh, thing. Uh, for people like us that's unique to, to us, uh, that they don't have access to it. They're held away from it because they, they can't. It would be a taboo for them to do it, for one thing, but also their worldview doesn't allow it. So it's a great opportunity. And, and, and speaking of that, I've just got the website up here of um, uh, Imperium Press. Maybe you just might want to talk about some of the new titles you've got coming up uh, and just some of the stuff you do on the website. You can, see, can you see what I've got up there um, on the screen? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, so, um, so I'll just jump on new releases, perhaps. And you just direct me where to go and uh, just tell us what you got, um, some of the stuff you got coming out. Sure. Well. So that, that book that you see there at the top left, that is, it just, we just launched the pre order for it uh, yesterday, or depending where you are, earlier today. Uh, it's mm -hmm. called Breeding the Human Herd, and it's by Ed Dutton, who's well known in our circles yeah. as an um, evolutionary psychologist and researcher. And basically what he's explaining here is 
um, what has dr uh, driven the dysgenic pressure uh, since mm -hmm. the um, Industrial Revolution? Effectively, the uh, what he explains in this book is it's a very erudite and scientific gloss on the idea that good times make for uh, that uh, good men make for uh, good times, good times make for weak men. And we are mm. here right now, basically like the industrial revolution yeah. was created by the absolute giants of, um, of the West. And this created easy conditions. These easy conditions, relaxed selection pressures and these relaxed selection pressures have created what he calls spiteful mutants. Um, mm. So this book is, is really, I think key to Ed's, on uh, his work because it ties together a lot of the threads that are, that mm. are sort of um, in, in a lot of his other works and everything. And it's, it's very, very well done. I'm super happy that, that we've launched this one. So that yeah. is the most recent, um, that is the most recent title that, that we've come out with. Um, but we've mm. had quite a few other things recently as well. Sorry. What was that? Oh, I was just going to say, um, uh, and what um, you might want to talk about some of your own uh, writings, or I can go to the uh, podcast section here, or um, just direct me uh, where to go. Well, what are you working on personally? Um, well, um, with with my own uh, material, my own output, um, we have uh, a, a podcast called Culture Dads that I do with Dave Martell, which I think is a kind of a breath of fresh air in mm. the nationalist scene because although we do deep dives into like theory and history and everything like that, we try to mm. tie it back into culture itself. We try to talk, tie it back into what it is that matters to us because of course, Imperium, our first thing that we put out was the Iliad. That was the very first book. We all love mm. ancient history. We all love, all love the myths and legends and everything like that, but we also love what's going on today. A lot of us mm. are, are big fans of things like black metal or modern movies or, mm. um, you know, just, culture that is contemporary contemporaneous with ourselves and this has meaning mm. for us too and in many cases yeah. uh, the the best of it is mythopoetic in its own right and it it really yeah. does tap into some of those deeper currents so we try and draw that out we talk about these deeper currents it's uh, a podcast that is um from a folkish perspective so we bring mm. that and i think that's that's pretty fresh people really like this podcast actually we've mm. we've met with a lot of success um i also write a Substack, um which i don't think <laughs> it might be linked somewhere on the website i'm not sure exactly uh but yeah it's imperiumpress.substack.com here we are and mm -hmm. um it is uh this is where i lay out my own worldview basically um and occasionally i'll comment on on what's going on in the scene and things like that mm. but a lot of what we talked about today uh vis-a-vis uh, -vis imperatives and propositions the archaic mm. revival um this sort of thing is what i lay out in my Substack, and mm. it's it, this is this is where i'm basically doing sort of r d trying to um trying to work out a um the, the worldview that is native to us, right? It's our, mm. as I've been saying, I keep using this term, our aboriginal worldview, our originary worldview that mm. um, essentially traces back to the, the Indo-Europeans, these peoples who were so virtuous and so explosive in their creativity that they 
um, mm. that two in five people alive today speak a dialect of their language. These people were pretty mm. impressive. And basically what I'm trying to do in this substack is to look at what's happening today, look at what has happened for the last you know, few millennia uh, mm. in the light of how someone um, of that milieu would, would look at it, basically. Mm. Um, I, I, in one of my um, overviews, I, I, I wrote a short introduction to the substack on there where I, I used the metaphor of like Grocknar, the, um, mm. the, you know, it, the clan chieftain from the Pontic Steppe uh, in 3000 mm. BC, if you transported him forward into uh, 2023, what would he think of what's going on? In some sense, mm. this is what I'm trying to do uh, in a less jokey way, in a, in a way that's yeah. that's a, a lot more serious and trying to actually um, excavate that worldview and and bring it to bear mm. on, on modern times. And I think it's extremely uh, fruitful if you can look at things from that perspective. So that's what the Substack is doing. Um, I myself, really? am, I, I, I've it's sort of, I've been hinting at this for years now, but I've, I've been writing a book that's, I would say about 70 or 80% of the way done. I'm chipping away at yeah. it because I don't have a lot of time for this sort of thing. Um, mm. Lots of publishing to do, lots of uh, podcasting and other things to do. Um, mm. So that's what I'm working on. And of course, got, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we've, we've got lots and lots of stuff coming, coming out. Uh, this year we have, um intensified our release schedule we've grown to mm. the 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 point where we're kind of an institution that can do that we can commission mm. translations we 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 translated a book by carl Lud, uh, ludwig von haller uh which mm. uh a a key key counter-revolutionary thinker counter-enlightenment thinker of the 19th century never been translated into english until now we've done mm. that um, so we can, this is the kind of thing that we can do as a, uh, growing institution. Um, and mm. uh, it's because guys support us and, and we really, mm. really appreciate that because it lets us do what we're doing, which is, yeah. um, you know, excavating these worldviews, recapturing our patrimony from people who hate it and want to erase it. Uh, mm. and it's, it's, I, I just, I'm blessed that I can do this basically. Yeah. Wow. Well, look, it's um, it's been great to talk to you. I, <clears throat> I really like the, uh, you know, I like the artworks on uh, the book covers. I think uh, uh, raising that uh, production value is important at the moment. I, I think that, um, I mean, because I remember when I first saw your website, just I thought, oh, look, see, they put time into the covers to make them look, you know, it's high quality. It's like a uh, penguin, you know. So yeah. just 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 putting the extra bit of effort in um, shows it's uh, aesthetics matter. They show in advance the value that goes into something, and people know, okay, this is a serious, um, this is a serious thing. I should buy my stuff from, right? Because um, this looks no different to any, you know, peng penguin or I, th I think that's that's um, you're you're a leader uh, there. I think uh, Artos is, I think, another one that does good book covers uh, as as well. Um, yeah, it's very good. But yeah, it's it's um, yeah, it's great, dude. It's really nice to have you on. Uh, we'll have you on again. Um, later on, if you have anything coming up, let us know and we'll, um, we'll, we'll uh, do something again. But yeah, real pl a pleasure talking to you, man. I think people will really enjoy that one. Yeah. Thank you very much, Scott. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I appreciate you having me on and it's been a great conversation. All right, we'll cut it there. Uh, God save the king spirit, as I say, everyone, and dare greatly <laughs> yeah, to sure. believe. Yeah, right, I, I appreciate we'll it, man. That was good. Nice. Sorry. Sorry, I, I appreciate you reaching out to me. It's uh, it's it's great that you th you thought of me for your uh, having as a guest on your podcast.
yeah, I, I had seen you on uh, Millennial Woes. No, I'd seen you before that, actually. I'd seen, uh, I think I'd already read you. Um, so when you said, come on, uh, can I come on too? I was like, I'm already sending you the email. <laughs> right, when, I don't know, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, that's a good, uh, I think there's a lot of excitement around and people entering the scene and um, it's becoming mainstream eyes, which is great. I think a lot of, because my channel actually, uh, I just had Dave uh, on and uh, he was he was uh, thinking he didn't need to um, introduce himself, but I don't think he realizes that half my subscribers are people that are not in the scene, right? It's just the new people being brought into it because of everything that's happened in COVID and stuff. So it's pretty exciting. And having yeah. Twitter open, I think it's bringing a lot of new people. Um, yeah, so I think there's an opportunity there to, um, yeah, just have be the dominant thinking force if we're not already, if we're not already sort of the um, leader. We are getting there. I mean, I, I don't want to reveal too much for obvious reasons, like just you know protecting customer yeah, yeah. data. But I see the names that order our books, and yeah, there are some yeah. some real movers and shakers that are reading what we're doing, and. This yep. is the case with the broader scene as well. There are eyes on us, and yes. you know this is this is our time. Yeah. Uh, one one of these people yeah. recently tweeted out that um, I, I can't remember exactly what the wording was, but it was something like, "All of the interesting energy is happening in places uh, on the internet that where boys fear to tread." Basically, yeah, right, like yeah. not part of polite society, in other words. Yeah, because you have to be brave to do it. I mean, me. I mean, even I'm sure when you first started, it was a decision. Uh, cause people can find out, right. And pretty people get doxxed a lot. So yeah, uh, <clears throat> it takes a lot of, um, bravery to step in front of and put your voice even cause a lot of people I ask on still don't really have the balls to even put their voice in front of it, you know? Um, so it takes a lot of bravery and it isn't, it's not, it's not, and it's actually a pressure and I can tell from my face and my name in front of it, it's not for boys. You got to have a certain courage, be a certain amount of disagreeable, but as you say, People are watching, and Tucker's, Tucker Carlson's producer watches this show, and it's, it's not even that. I just found that out recently. So it's not yeah. even that uh, that big, but they're watching the interesting spaces. They're watching uh, that stuff, so it's just a matter of time. I know Patrick, uh, what's his name again? Patrick um, Casey. I just watched him last night, and he was saying that people in our space are getting tweets that are in the millions now, right? Because it has the energy, whereas these conservatives who have... <clears throat> 50 times the subscribe uh, followers they're not even getting the views that our, our guys are right because they're yeah. cucks right anyway <laughs> well they're just genuinely not interesting right and yeah. in many yeah. cases you can see how you can see the direction that ideas are flowing like a lot of, yeah. in a lot of cases what they're saying today is stuff that we were saying six months ago or or, or longer than that right like yeah we're shaping we're shaping the discourse and and it's it's exciting actually yeah. yeah it's but, funny uh, somebody somebody asked because uh, um myself and my co-host dave martell we have a podcast called culture dads and we've uh mm. we recently did an, an ama and somebody asked me about like you know why is canada so based and i mm. i just ex explained to him basically that um canada is like a sort of vestige of british loyalism and mm. all the good things that come along with loyalism, except for just get rid of the object that it's loyal to. Yeah. Like, is, yeah. As in, we're no longer part of the British Empire, or I guess we are because we're part of the Commonwealth, but not really. And mm. all those like really good loyalist instincts mm, have been totally okay. subverted and turned back against themselves as, as a result yeah. of losing the object of loyalty. So, yeah. That's it's the same, uh, isn't it? 
Um, yeah. We might as well just uh, wrap this into starting anyway, because um, I introduce you outside of it. But it is the shame of that. I know what you mean. This the structure of loyalism is perfect. If it was the proper unsubverted Anglo-Saxon rulership and a proper king, a based actual king, you know, someone who uh, a true emperor uh, that was properly leading and loyal to the Anglo-Celtic ethnic group. Um, yeah. That would be ideal because that's what really is in Canada. It's I've looked into it in terms of the populations. The immigrant immigration doesn't really. It's really Anglo ma majority. Even though people say a lot of Scottish people migrated there, but the majority, the culture was already established. It's always the majority, and so you, you can really say that the Catholics of things tends to, uh, what do you call it, mm, get morphed into the Anglo thing anyway. Uh, yeah. Apart from the French element. And that, that is one thing about Canada is that we just got so soft that we allow that. Not that it matters now because they subverted it anyway, but we allow that French speaking thing to happen when it really should have just been crushed and forced to speak English. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's it's funny. I, I actually go go back and forth on, on the FQ, the French question um, over the course of my life where, uh, you know, at first, like when I was in, in high school or uh, you know, in my formative years, like at this time when I was growing up, they had this thing called the Meech Lake Accords, which was basically mm. a qu a question of should Quebec um, separate and become its own country. Mm. And of course, um, you know, every all the stuff that was in the air at the time was basically uh, no, they shouldn't. They're a proper part of Canada. Mm. They should just get along with everyone else. Why are they being so selfish? And of course, that's what mm. I sort of imbibed just, you know, being part of the culture. Um, mm. And then later on, I sort of like, I went back there a few years ago and I just realized, you know, having been in Australia for a, a long time and having absolutely no French influence at mm. all here, um, mm. going back to Canada, just realizing what a unique flavor it brings to Canadian identity and thinking to myself, mm. wow, well, they actually are sort of a um, you know, they've made Canada kind of part of, partly what it is, and, and that's cool, and that's, you know, something that I, I grew up with and I have a nostalgia for and everything. Um, but at the same time as well, like with what you've said, that's true. Um, culture really needs to be, in a sense, a monoculture, mm. right? Mm. It's that's it, right, yeah. Especially language. It's very, very hard for a nation, one mm. nation, to have two languages. That almost is mm. sort of a... Mm. Uh, it's a precondition of having a nation is that you have to have the same language. I mean, this is goes mm. all the way back to Herodotus, right? Mm. Um, so I kind of go back and forth on it. I guess like my sort of Canadian nostalgia for the Canada that I grew up mm. in makes me like the French element. But at the same time, my, my reason tells me that yeah. that cannot work. You know what I mean? Especially when you know what an ethnic uh, group and how true nations really do emerge from that ethnos, that, uh, that way of being, that soul. Um, and you, I think with the, I can look at the French thing and say, ah, I wouldn't, I don't want an ethnic group to not have its thing, uh, yeah. to not, to, you know, to be removed because I don't want ours to either. But at the same time, if we were based like we used to be, we would just say, no, you're conquered. You're conquered. You've been conquered. It's, we're a tribe. <laughs> we came in, we conquered you. And that's over now, you know, you know? Yeah. because think about it. It's like Indian tribes. No, no, you were conquered. Um, that's how it should have been. Uh, yeah, uh, even in Australia, for instance, you've got now you've got this native thing coming back. 
where it should be no you were conquered by uh just like you were conquered by the whoop whoops whatever from the other tribe you know just uh, they conquered each other all the time with their different tribes another tribe came in and conquered you right so and they're nice enough to let you in to their to their you know way of being and give you citizenship (laughs) that's such a you know anywhere else or any chinese that's a very it's a historical anomaly yeah (laughs) you'd be genetically cleansed or whatever but no no we don't do that so or we didn't do that um yeah yeah but um so how did this all begin for you with this imperium press which i would recommend to everyone highly as a great publisher of the the european and western classics uh and a based one that gives us the true thing it doesn't hide it like these uh peterson spin-off schools uh, peterson uh you know the uh what's it called again ralston college oh you we're going to save the west with classical liberalism <laughs> right mm. no because they're never going to give you the full truth of the text they're never going to give you the proper interpretation of heidegger and nietzsche and the classics right because they'll leave out the stuff that's a bit more oh, that'll get us in trouble 